Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. You guys, it's Bullseye. I'm Guy Branham, in for Jesse Thorne. Constance Wu plays the character of Jessica Huang on ABC's Fresh Off the Boat. The series is based on Chef Eddie Huang's memoirs, which means that Wu is sort of playing Huang's actual mom. I met her. She does weird things like she consults psychics and she reads Stephen King and she tells me about her dreams where she saw a golden highway with a basket of eggs at the end of it that were meant for her sons. (laughs) But she's not – when she's saying them to me in real life, this is not scripted, you know, she means them because she believes in her family and she believes in her sons. And that type of love is something that we don't see on network television because, like, I think the white American way of, like, a mother's love is something that's sweeter. You know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And her method of delivering it is not that way, but it's still motivated by the same core. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Constance Wu about diversity in TV shows, how getting dumped can bolster your career, and learning to play comedy. One thing I realize is I think there are a lot of actors who are really charming, and so you can see them trying to hit the joke, and you let them get away with it because they're so charming. I don't have that charm. I don't. I know I know. I don't, because people don't let me get away with it. People like are waiting for me to like not get it. Later, I'll talk to Ron Nicewanner. He's the screenwriter behind some of the most important movies about LGBT people in America, movies that have helped change lives. I have met people who have walked up to me and said, because I watched your movie, I came out to my parents. Because I watched your movie, I uh, told my parents I had HIV. Because my parents watched your movie, uh, they asked me to come back home. We hadn't spoken in eight years. And I got a call. My mother said, would you please come home? Plus, I will tell you about the greatest musical performance of all time. Or at least the greatest ever to take place in a soccer stadium. That's all coming up on Bullseye. So let's go. It is Bullseye. I am Guy Branham, in for Jesse Thorne. You guys, this past February, the first network show in decades to star Asian Americans premiered on ABC. Fresh Off the Boat is inspired by the memoir of celebrity chef Eddie Huang and his childhood growing up in Orlando, Florida, as a first-generation American son of two Taiwanese immigrants. Fresh Off the Boat features a fictionalized version of Eddie and his brothers and grandma, along with his parents, played by Randall Park and Constance Wu. Constance is Jessica Huang, Eddie's driven, confident, clever mom. In the first season of the show, we see Jessica reluctantly agree to her husband's plan to move to Florida and open a steakhouse, and her efforts to settle in with a new city and life with her family. The show has just returned for its second season on ABC. Constance Wu, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. Constance Wu, here's the thing that gets brought up to you guys all of the time. It's been 20 years since Margaret Cho's All-American Girl was the first Asian-American sitcom on network TV. When you were younger, were you aware of the very few Asian-American characters we had on TV? Or were you just in love with any interesting role. I'm not sure if I was aware of it in like a overtly conscious way like but I I mean I think that the fact that there were no Asian leading characters on any single show on television even if I wasn't consciously aware of it it had to have entered somewhere that faces like mine 
we're not given stories on television. Um, so I, I think I, I must have known a little bit. I, I don't think it ever discouraged me, though, because um, I always knew what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. So you always wanted to be an actor? I mean, I, I, I mean, there are other things I wanted to be. <laughs> like, you know, when you're a kid, you want to be a veterinarian. Uh-huh. Uh, I wanted to be a writer for a, a while. I wanted to be a painter for a little bit. But I've been an actor since I was about 10 because I was always doing community theater in my hometown. When did you first sort of like get the idea that you being a woman and being Asian American was going to like impact the roles that you got? I would imagine in community theater, were you just another one of the kids in Auntie Mame or like did it ever come up? Well, in community theater, I mean, it was less about let's make this great piece of art and it was more about let's give these kids opportunities to have fun. Uh-huh. I mean, they were always double cast, so everybody would have, you know, opportunities. And, yeah, I never felt like being Asian impacted my casting in those small theater circles. When I moved to New York and casting became a little more practical, um, like, oh, the mother is going to be a white woman, so the person playing her daughter must be a white girl, which actually in this day and age doesn't really necessarily have to be true, but often it is. And so that kind of very practical side of casting um, entered my awareness when I when I went into like the professional side of it. Um, and you studied acting at SUNY Purchase, which is mm-hmm. like this crazy, crazy, amazing acting program. Was that intense? Was it like finally giving you what you were looking for after all those years in community theater? It was intense. It was, and it was only fifteen of us in each class, and it was a conservatory, so. You know, it's, I didn't really write papers or, or read textbooks in college. I just – it was like a practicum curriculum. I, I don't even – I don't feel like I was a fully formed adult in many mm-hmm. ways. When you're 18, you're sort of just seeking approval and finding out who you are. And well, and I think that gets in the way of good work is approval seeking. It's not that, – that has nothing to do with anything when it comes to creativity, you know. Well, there's also something weird about – not having a fully formed identity yourself and then going and inhabiting other identity or attempting to inhabit identities all day long. Yeah. Like... Yeah, like I was playing Blanche Dubois when I was 18. (laughs) Like I'm not even... I'm not even joking with you. Like I was doing that in drama school. And, uh, you know, I think it's good for your personal humanity to read those texts and those things. As a person who is less experienced, I think it's good to see other viewpoints, read other viewpoints, and understand that even though there is no experience you've had at which you have not been the absolute center, (laughs) you know, we're naturally self-centered in that way. Um, I think the more you read and the more you look at other viewpoints, um, I think it makes you a better person. So I think in terms of like reading Blanche Dubois or doing Clifford Odets when I'm like 18 or 19, um, I think it was good for me as a person. I'm not sure it was the right time for me to approach that as an actor. And then you get bounced out of that into New York where you're probably reading for like Fourth Lady and deodorant commercial all of the time. Oh, yes. <laughs> I have done so many McDonald's commercials. It's not even <laughs> – it's like their sponsor, or I was. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I am Guy Branham in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Constance Wu. She plays Jessica Huang on the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. Every actor has that thing that they just go out for too much. 
especially when you are a member of a minority group, like the casting director has a, a limited notion of what you can do. What's the casting notice that you always just got so annoyed to find in your email inbox? Best friend, please submit all ethnicities except for Caucasian. <laughs> Uh, so was it a lot of, like, rom-com best friends? It was a lot of, like, and then what happens? No, it was a lot of, like, girl, get your together. I'm the either quirky weird one who gives you advice or I'm, like, the down-to-earth one who gives you advice and then you still don't take it, but then you take it later. Like, <laughs> the most important thing was that I was not white because their lead character was white. And it wasn't written with any regards to what actual diversity means, which is the fact that we do have a different viewpoint. Uh, it was just like anything to fill this slot so that we can say that we were diverse. Forced functional diversity. Yes. Okay. Well, that's such an interesting thing because a writer's room full of mostly white guys so usually is doing diversity in one of two ways. One is just – Writing an, a less important character who doesn't really matter the same way that they would write anyone else and then saying, well, we can make that one not white. Or just sort of like strapping together a bunch of terrible cliches of that minority group into like <laughs> a one episode guest spot of Angry Lady at Dry Cleaners. You got handed those roles all along the way. What do you do with those to give them some degree of humanity? You do that. You find the humanity in them. You don't. I mean, it would be very easy to just phone it in and be like, okay, I know this trope. Let me just go in and do it. Um, let's say you're playing the angry lady at the dry cleaner. I don't have to really prepare much. I know how to – it's three lines. But if you care about your work and you want to at least try to find something in it, then you sort of mine the scene for deeper meaning, which is, okay, she's angry over this very small thing. What's happened in her life that she gets angry over this? And then you just sort of write a whole backstory about, like, how she felt when people took advantage of her at another dry cleaners and how she was having a really bad day that day and how it feels like every single time she goes, people don't listen to her. And then so that when you play that scene, at least you personally as an actor have mind your character for as much depth as you can in that small little piece. Um, and then, of course, sometimes you're lazy and you don't do that. <laughs> I'll be perfectly honest. But, you know, when you're not lazy and when you're doing your best, and, and usually when you get the role, is uh, is when you do try to go deeper. He, he goes deepest wins in terms you, of acting. You seriously think that is true and it does pay off? It doesn't pay off in terms of employment, but I think it always pays off in terms of how you feel about your work as an artist, which is the only thing you have control over. So, you're a very well-trained actress, complex, intelligent human being. Go on. You're in New York. Why on earth would you come to Los Angeles? Oh, it's so easy. I got dumped by my boyfriend, and I was really <laughs> sad, and so I just flew out here with no plan. It's impulse. <laughs> that is so dramatic. That is so little girl who grew up reading plays and watching too many movies. Oh, yeah. And it's like I my, need a break. It's like my version of Moscow. You know, it's like <laughs> running off. Uh, well, no, it was actually three things happened. Okay. It was, I got fired from my waitressing job, which I actually loved at the time. Then the next day, my boyfriend dumped me. 
And then the day after that, my roommate, who I also loved, said that she wasn't renewing our lease because she was moving in with her boyfriend. That's and, the pilot of a sitcom. Yeah. That's essentially the pilot <laughs> of The New Girl. Yeah, I guess. And I'm just like weeping tears as I'm on the computer like booking a one-way ticket. Um, and then I just put all my stuff on Craigslist the next day. All right. So the role of Jessica Huang. Did you know that there was this one lead for an Asian-American woman before you even got called in for it? How did you learn about this role? Uh, I found out about it when I got called in for it by my wonderful agent. Um, Yeah, I hadn't heard of the book. If you're familiar with Eddie Huang, which I know a lot of people are, he's sort of a cooler person than I am. (laughs) So, like, in terms of, you know, that type of culture, I – even now, like, you know – the Eddie character is like really into hip hop and this is embarrassing, but like I just saw Straight Out of Compton uh-huh. a couple weeks ago. I had not even heard of NWA until I saw it a couple weeks ago. And, and you know, that's my, not possible. No, it's not. My co star Randall was like, How is that even possible? I was like, Honey, I was singing Rent and Les Mis and like doing that kind of stuff in high school. Like, I was not. I mean, I know there are a lot of actresses who were like, I'm such a nerd, I'm such a dork, and, like, I wasn't cool. But, no, I mean, I I was the girl that was singing Sondheim in the hall. Top three musicals. Give me your top three musicals right now. Right now. Gypsy. Okay. Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, my God. So Ash- good, right? Ashman and Mencken, they oh, gave us so much. They know how to write a melody, let me tell you. <laughs> okay? And, um, um, gosh, Sound of Music? Hey, it's classic. It's beautiful. Um, and <laughs> a woman who can't get her life together saying, screw it, I'm going to go somewhere else. Like, it's, uh, we can all identify with that. I have confidence in sunshine, you know? <laughs> I have confidence in rain. Those are great things to have confidence in because nobody controls them, except for, like, God, if you're into that thing. When you're a nun, you are into that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, okay, so... <laughs> That's good. Thank you. You're welcome. So you get this script. It's Mm -hmm. like an Asian-American lead. It's kind of the right age. What was your first inkling that this was a more complex, fleshier Asian-American woman than has been seen on network television? Um, When I met her, because I portray a real woman who's living today in Orlando, Florida. When I met her, um, it really just showed me that all of these things that we find funny that she does, they're really motivated by a much deeper place and like a a real personal thing. And I think that's just lovely. And it's something that, that people want to see. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, she does weird things like she consults psychics and she reads Stephen King and she tells me about her dreams where she saw a golden highway with a basket of eggs at the end of it that were meant for her sons. <laughs> but she's not – when she's saying them to me in real life, this yeah. is not scripted, you know, she means them because she believes in her family and she believes in her sons. And so it's not I'm saying this weird thing about a highway with golden eggs at the end of it because I'm trying to be funny, which is the way you might read a script and like other writers wrote this to be funny. She's saying it because she believes it and she cares about it. And, you know, that type of love is something that we don't see on network television because, like, I think the American, the white American way of, like, a mother's love is something that's (laughs) – 
you know, sweeter. You know, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And her method of delivering it is not that way, but it's still motivated by the same core. Okay. My favorite joke from the show, like the joke that for weeks afterwards would just make me laugh, was <laughs> when the boys came over for the sleepover and you were detailing what you had for them to do. Let's listen to a clip. Oh, welcome to our home. Come in. Eddie is so excited. He's had such a hard time making any friends. Okay, Mom. Thanks. There's pork bone stew on the stove. It's good for your hearing. That's just such a clearly structurally beautiful joke. It's a mom who does not understand what is fun for little boys at a sleepover. Like, her only goal is to make these children as healthy and, like, capable of going out into the world as possible. And she just doesn't get it. But it was in terms that were outside of, you know... In white American culture, there's not a thing that's good for your hearing. It's just such a, like, out-of-the-box thing to say. Um, That's not a joke that a network exec knows is a joke. Like, was it hard for you guys to take some of these jokes that were coming from a different place and are so great because they aren't jokes that we've heard a thousand times before? But when you're at a table read, are you worried about stuff like that landing? I'm never worried about the joke. Uh-huh. I One of the things I've learned from doing comedy, which is still kind of new to me, is that if I'm trying to make it funny and you could see me trying to make it funny, even if it's funny, it never lands. Uh-huh. It's gilding the lily. The, our writers are so great. They already write such great stuff. And if they write something that's great and it's a little bit absurd and I'm able to find the truth of that absurdity uh-huh. and actually really mean it when I say it, then it'll be funny. Uh, one thing I realize is I think there are a lot of actors who are really charming and so you can see them trying to hit the joke and you let them get away with it because they're so charming. I don't have that charm. I don't. I know I know I don't because people don't let me get away with it. People like are waiting for me to like not get it. And so, you know, I have to I have like every week I go sit down with my acting coach for an hour for every single episode and I'm like this is already funny. We already know why this is funny. They wrote it funny. Okay, let's find a way to make it real so that people will actually laugh instead of being like, that's an actress trying to be funny. So I don't have to do much to find the funny because the writers do that. They're great. It's Bullseye. I'm Guy Brannon in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Constance Wu. She plays Jessica Huang on the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. The show is now in its second season. Um, Your showrunner, Ninochka Khan, isn't Taiwanese-American. Only a few of your writers are are Chinese-American. Your parents are, are both from Taiwan. Um, the, the characters who you guys are playing are, are immigrants from Taiwan. When is it your place to step up and be like, they wouldn't do that, or you're not getting it? Um, that's an area I'm still sort of navigating when it's my place. But I think usually if it means something to me, then I feel like I I need to speak up. And I, I'm so new to network television that I'm not sure when I'm allowed. And much credit goes to Nanach Khan because when you do approach her with, you know, something that you're concerned with, you know, of course she doesn't always use it, but she always listens and she'll always take the time to explain why or why not something is going to go down. But she does use a lot of stuff. You know, for example, I think in the, in the first episode – there's a scene where I give my kids some food and in the original script it was like bok choy and green tea. And I was like, that's kind of like generic 
yeah. Asian. I was like something that would be very specifically Taiwanese, at least to my childhood. So, and I am Taiwanese yeah. American, so it's not wrong if this happened. <laughs> yeah. Would be, you know, this thousand year old black egg with tofu, which sounds really weird, but is like really delicious and was my <laughs> favorite thing when I was a kid. And um, grass jelly drink, which is also sort of like a summertime treat. Um, and I was like, those things of specificity, not only do they sound kind of funny because they're different, they're truly authentic to the Taiwanese-American experience, at least for myself growing up. So something like that, if you bring it to her with the intention of authenticity and caring about your work, she always listens and she is often very receptive to changing stuff. Nanachka Khan um, created the very funny and short-lived Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, which was hilarious, but was a very different show from an Asian-American family sitcom. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that having a female showrunner is part of what makes Jessica such an amazing character? I think it's a big part of it. I think because of that, and when you have a female showrunner, um, she, she... probably is a little bit more aware of not just using the woman as a prop to support the man's story to, yeah. to you know, his either motivation or his impetus, which, you know, a lot of scripts I read, they do that. Um, uh, you know, I'm talking about movie scripts I read, not fresh off the boat scripts I read. And I right. think, you know. Well, also in sitcoms for like a decade, we had a fat, funny guy and a wife who disapproved of him on every sitcom. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it helps. And I think also the fact that She's smart, and um, she also – I think she's Iranian. Yeah. Iranian? But I do think what she tries to get across is the feeling of otherness, uh-huh. which is something we we don't see in shows because our shows are always led by white people. And white people very rarely have to exist in a sphere in which they feel other because of their skin color. You know, in a lot of these interviews I've been doing recently, I've been talking about white privilege and people are like, well, I grew up poor and I'm white. And I'm like, I'm not talking about financial privilege right. or educational privilege. It's the privilege of not having to ever feel like you are other right. or very rarely having to feel like you are other because of how you look. And I think Nanachika comes from that and she's very aware of that. And so she writes things that are from that perspective but flipped around so that we um, take ownership of the story, which I think is powerful. I'll continue my conversation with Constance Wu after the break. We'll talk about overcoming Asian-American cliches on her show, Fresh Off the Boat. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, if you enjoy Bullseye, you will love NPR's Planet Money. It is full of insightful stories about how the world works, like how Price Club and its imitators made shopping harder and why customers loved it. Plus useful stuff, like the inside story behind the resurrection of Hydrox Cookies. Find Planet Money now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Travis McElroy. I'm Griffin McElroy. And we host the first podcast ever made, My Brother, My Brother, Made. Every Monday, we put out the first ever advice comedy podcast ever. They found our podcast on Dead Sea Scrolls. We're the Hammurabi Code of podcasts, and we're ready to entertain you with jokes that we invented the first jokes. So join us every Monday on MaximumFun.org. You'll never crack our code, Dan Brown. Just try me. It's history in the making. And in the faking. And it's all yours for the taking.
It's Bullseye. I'm Guy Branham, in for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Constance Wu. She plays Taiwanese-American mother Jessica Huang on the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. Your show has gotten a little bit of criticism from people who think that Jessica plays into stereotypes of angry Asian lady, that Lewis plays into stereotypes of sort of passive Asian guy. You guys have the, the very big challenge of trying to create characters we haven't seen before. To some extent, you do have to work from cliches that white people will understand because they are a lot of the audience, but you also have to move beyond that. How do you think uh, about that world of being other and relatable at the same time? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. You know, at the same time, if Amy Poehler is playing a nerdy woman, nobody's saying you're playing the stereotype of a nerd because there are so many white people that have been in cinema or television. She's also played other things, whatever. And there are so few Asians that have been in media. And often when they are, they are the supporting, you know, passive man or aggressive tiger mother or whatever. And I think part of the reason people cringe is because they're supporting characters, they are also sort of props to move along the main storyline. But if the real Jessica has Tiger Mom qualities, it's not because I'm utilizing those for humor. It's because they're a true part of her experience. And it's probably been informed by being an immigrant and coming to a country and wanting your children to succeed. Because what happens when, you know, you die and you're gone and you want to make sure they're well cared for, that is a real legitimate fear and a way that many Asian American mothers have probably found to face that fear is like, okay, let me make sure my child has the best education possible so that they could be successful so that they're okay when I'm gone. So even if she occasionally falls into uh, something that might be deemed stereotypical, she's not a stereotype. She's a person who has qualities that sometimes fall into that and sometimes fall into completely different other things like loving Stephen King. And so if you look at the character in terms of the complete arc, then I, I think it takes away those pressures of stereotype because honestly it's like the idea of fighting stereotypes, you know, there's a stereotype that Asian-American kids are good in math and science. Does that mean me as a kid, I'm going to fail all my algebra classes on purpose to fight that stereotype? <laughs> no, I'm going to I'm going to still do well, but I'm also going to make sure that people know it's not the only thing I am good at, but I am good at it. So Eddie Huang, the celebrity chef who wrote the book that your show is based on. Yes, love him. Has been critical at times of the show for watering down the specificity of his experience yes. um that it you know that it isn't as as violent that it isn't as complex he has said before that he wanted it to be asian american married with children but also you're having to occupy a space that hasn't been occupied before and try to get everyone in iowa to watch this show <laughs> like is it as an actor he, like reading this tension between the people who are writing your show and the guy that this show is based on, how, how does it affect you? The, how does it affect me is that I see other people freaking out about it. Yeah. And I'm like, why are you freaking out? Like, I think, I think conflict is often necessary to elicit change. And I think that, you know, I support the show and I support Eddie's voice on the show. And I think that those two things can coexist. Um, I don't want to shut any person's mouth in terms of 
what they feel is authentic. I want to encourage that type of conversation, even if it isn't, you know, harmonious with my own voice in it. I think because, you know, if I'm only encouraging the conversations that are harmonious with my own voice, like preaching to the choir, that's kind of an ego-based argument. And it doesn't force me to to look at things and... and um, it doesn't. I don't think it encourages conversation. I think I can p- completely sympathize and understand where Eddie's coming from because it's his. It's his story, and he didn't know what he was getting into. He's never done network television. I sympathize with that because I had never done network television. At the same time, we are a family show, and I love the fact that kids can sit around yeah. and watch this, and that kids can grow up seeing faces like theirs on the screen and I love that aspect of it so I completely understand why we have those like sweeter aspects of our story that aren't like you know domestic abuse that's like in his book we want it we want, we want kids to be able to watch and to have fun and to see themselves on TV well your your point about the ability to have disagreement without it tearing everything down is kind of interesting because fresh off the boat is really the only family sitcom we've seen in a long time where people yell at each other, like where there are, you know, impolite disagreements between parents and that's seen as a functional part of a relationship. Yeah, I mean, there's one way to look at it in terms of like that is their method of expressing love. But I think the more I've thought about this, I think there's cultural um, roots to that. Like, for example, sometimes in Chinese, in the language, if you're too, if you're polite, it almost is – I don't want to say a sign of disrespect because that's not what I mean. But it's uh, – the less polite you are, it shows that there's intimacy between you two people in the conversation and you don't have to go through these like forced politeness. It's like it's, it's a form of trust. It's a form of trusting that like you get me. I don't got to sugarcoat my stuff and like we're – people in this together. And that's a that's a language cultural thing that I think is interesting because it doesn't always translate over yeah. to like the American way of um, language and politeness and speaking. And I think that's why it's funny. Uh, let's listen to a clip of Jessica having uh, a conversation with Lewis about sending their children to Chinese school because she's scared of them losing their Chinese identity. Now, imagine this as the future location of Cattleman's Express. There's low overhead, lots of foot traffic. We'd have positive cash flow from day one. Ted can get us a break on rent. Ted who? No idea. I met him once at the club and look where it led. See, this is what the country club gets us, opportunities like this. All I see is white people, hot dogs, and a Wolfgang Chanks. That catfish with the smile of an idiot is our voice. If we drop the ball, they'll end up getting their culture from fake Chinese restaurants like this one. Eddie, what's Buddhism? Orange chicken. That's going overboard. No, that's how we end up with grandkids named Bitsy. <laughs> You're on a very, very successful television program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are the things, of course... Stay on Fresh Off the Boat forever. That's first. (laughs) But what are the other things you would like to do now that you do have more options? Now that this whole conversation has opened up into this idea of Asian Americans in in entertainment that I hadn't taken too much time to think about before because I was just mired in survival, um, I want to support uniquely Asian American stories. I don't want to just play the hostage in some big studio movie. Um, 
you know, if I get that, that's great. But if it coincides with an opportunity in which there's a great script about the Asian American experience that pays me like a quarter of the salary, I'd actually rather do that because, you know, we're, I think a lot, we're talking a lot about diversity. It doesn't mean we want the white people to write Asian stories. Uh What I want is to foster the Asian American writers and directors and producers and actors and foster their own stories to sort of come into the spotlight a little bit. So, But also Masha and Three Sisters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, all of Chekhov. I wanted I, all of it. <laughs> well, I think you have been doing a beautiful job, Constance Wu. Thank you so much for, for talking with me. Uh, yeah, thank you. Constance Wu. She's one of the stars of the sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, which airs Tuesday nights on ABC. It's Bullseye. I'm Guy Baraniman for Jesse Thorne. The new film Freeheld is based on a true story, that of Laurel Hester, a New Jersey police detective, and her domestic partner, Stacey Andre. They were domestic partners because in 2013, New Jersey didn't recognize gay marriage. Laurel, diagnosed with cancer, wanted to leave her pension to Stacey, but was denied by county legislators. Her and Stacey's story became the subject of a 2007 documentary, and now has been adapted into a new film called Freeheld, starring Julianne Moore and Ellen Page. My guest is the man who adapted that story for film, the Oscar-nominated screenwriter Ron Nicewaner. Ron also wrote the screenplay for Philadelphia, the 1993 film starring Tom Hanks, which helped along the national conversation about the AIDS crisis and homophobia, and Soldier's Girl, the 2003 Showtime movie, which changed the way many Americans saw trans people. Ron Nicewaner, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks, Guy. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you. Um, Ron... Well, let's start this out. When did you realize you were gay? <laughs> you know, it was such a different time, so it wasn't sort of so much realizing, oh, I'm gay. You know, that wasn't a word that was anywhere in the vocabulary of myself or anyone that I knew or anyone I was related to. I do remember feeling um, odd. Uh, I remember looking through my grandparents' Sears catalog when I was I maybe six, and there was a guy in briefs, and I couldn't turn the page. I just stared at it, and I thought, I, I just, I, I can remember to this day the excitement of this guy in briefs in the Sears catalog. Um, I was 15, I think, maybe, or 16 when I heard the word homosexual spoken aloud the first and only time in my entire uh, growing up in a small town, coal mining town in southwestern Pennsylvania. So realizing one was gay, I would say by the time I was in college, um, in the uh, mid-'70s, uh, went to college in 74, graduated in 78. Where would you go to college? Uh, University of Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. And that was, you know, I, I, that was the beginning of my coming out process. And then by the time I was a senior in 1977, 1978, I went to my first gay civil rights march in Pittsburgh. Uh, Anita Bryant was coming to town. She was doing her uh, campaign to prevent homosexuals, gay people, from adopting children. They had been successful in Florida. And uh, I marched. And that was the beginning of my gay life, my official gay life, and my gay uh, civil rights career. Well, it's an interesting thing because some people come out and they're just about finding somebody to to love and mess around with. Um, And 
Oh, there was plenty of that. It was right, the, right. It, it was the seventies guy. But, but the choice. But the <laughs> there choice. were poppers. There was disco. There was sex. I've I've heard wonderful things <laughs> about uh, pre HIV and AIDS gay America. There you go. But you immediately believed that part of your role was to be political and make people more comfortable with the idea of homosexuality. I, you know, I was political um, in uh, junior high school. Uh, I was campaigning in coal mining Pennsylvania for George McGovern against Nixon. I uh, was the editor of the underground <laughs> underground newspaper where we defied the school board. So I was called a communist. I refused. And by the way, a lot of this is, does not apply to me so much today. I, I refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance because as <laughs> I explained to my school uh, superintendent that there isn't liberty and justice for all yet. I was, uh, uh, you know, look at black people in the South, you know. So I I was I was a radical, you know, in the in small town. I was Pennsylvania, well, so I was you, ready uh, for the for a cause. And I found when I, when I came out, that was that cause. How did your cool town parents deal with having this uh, pushy liberal kid? You know, my parents are genuinely good, decent, great Americans. I mean, they're they're both in heaven now, but they um my, they have an instinctual had an instinctual decency. So they were embarrassed. You know, the the vice principal of my school came to my house one day and shook his finger at my parents and said I was going to be expelled and maybe even put in jail. I mean, you know, there was drama, none of which happened, of course. And uh, my parents, they just sort of kept quiet about it. And, you know, there was no punishment. There were no threats. Um, I happened to be one of those people who was blessed with parents who unconditionally loved me. You know, now, we never talked about anything. You know, I never um, came out officially to them, uh-huh. but I did come out around the time of Philadelphia in the New York Times. Right. I did come out on uh, Nightline with Ted Koppel, mm-hmm. uh, and there, I, there was some, there was given an award in New York uh, in 1994. My parents were at the uh, award ceremony, and from the stage, it was the first time it was ever in a room with my parents, and I said... I spoke about being gay, and it was so weird that, like, we're having this conversation with 400 strangers, basically all wearing suits. And, right. You know. At a period of time when you're getting, like, the greatest accolades of your career yes. f- in a way that is so rooted in your homosexuality. <laughs> Believe me, I, my parents, we were on vacation in Key West together when the Nightline Ted Koppel uh, show was airing. These are coal mining people who have supper at 5 p.m. Uh-huh. I made a dinner reservation at 10.30 <laughs> so that we would miss Nightline in case for some reason they would turn it on. So isn't that funny that I just I just couldn't have that conversation with them. But I was able to have it finally in public. And I remember after I gave this, this talk and I was, received this award, some AIDS-related charity uh, award, and uh, you know I, I walked back to the table where my parents were sitting Excuse me. And they were both crying. Yeah. And they just held me and said, we love you so much. Sorry to get all emotional. No, no. That's, that's <laughs> so it was, lovely. It was, it was just a quiet kind of love that didn't need to be – they didn't need to be confronted. It, it's what every gay kid wants. Mm. It's what every gay person, adult, fears they're not going to be yep. able to get. Exactly. Um, and it's got to be so weird – to to get to that place after you've addressed it in so many other much more public ways. It was it was definitely and that sort of just speaks to who me and my relatives are, you know, sort of we're very stoic, working class people and we don't talk about our emotions. Um I, I feel like uh, 
one of the reasons our accursed kind end up at the arts so much is this thing of having stuff that you can't talk about and then having it sort of burst forth in other ways. Yes. Uh, when did you realize you wanted or needed to be a writer? Again, very early on. I mean, in sixth grade, I was like, I was writing plays, and like the, the the boys in the class beat me up because the principal made them skip recess to rehearse the play <laughs> with me. I remember that was that caused a big controversy. So I was kind of always controversial, and I was always uh, trying to force other people to do things. And I and and I was always about writing uh, all my life. I can't remember uh, again from sixth grade. Um. Pennsylvania comes up so much in your work, mm. like uh, not to make everything about your homosexuality, but for for a lot of people, you, there can be a distance between where they grew up and where they find themselves as a, as adults. How? Why does Pennsylvania matter to you? Why is it such an integrated part of your work? You know, I I, I don't I. It was challenging, I think, to grow up in a place where the the most important things were f- football, deer hunting and uh fishing. Uh and uh, I you know I didn't I wouldn't understand. I come from a duck hunting town. <laughs> there you go. I was in the marching band. Uh so I've, I I certainly have seen a lot of football games. Um but I I think that there's sometimes uh I I'm a um defender in some ways of the in-between America, you know, the, the America between L.A. and New York. And I think it's sometimes a mistake that those of us, you know, I, I've lived in New York for quite a, a big part of my life. Now I live in Los Angeles. I think it's often a mistake when we think that everyone in between these, you know, these two coasts is an idiot and a redneck and a, a gay hater. That has not been my experience. I find that there's a lot of uh, diversity out there, too, you know, in Pittsburgh, in Kansas. You know, there, there are lots of different people different beliefs. My father being not necessarily a political person, not a per- I never saw him read a book. He watched a lot of television. He loved sports. He was a quiet working class guy. Well, he told me at one point, he said, you know, I, he voted twice. He voted for Jesse Jackson for president. Like where did, we lived in a segregated oh, community. Wow. Yeah. And during the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas thing. Was it just he, his populism that appealed to him? It was, it was, he said, well, you know, he's the only one who tells the truth. <laughs> it's, there are working class people who may not be overtly political who have a I think there's a thread of American decency certainly my parents and all my relatives actually back home have it how did your professional career begin oh very early and very lucky in a way is this stroke of luck when people ask me like how can I break into screenwriting I'm like wow boy I I can't really help (laughs) you because I it was handed to me I was I went to film school which in 1978 people didn't even understand it. They'd say, oh, you're in graduate school. What for? And I'd say film. And they'd say, no, but really, what are you getting a degree in? And I'd say film. So uh, people, it was not as popular as it is today. Um, And I wrote a script in film school and my roommate, well, I shouldn't say roommate, excuse me. We said roommate in those days, actually, (laughs) but we were sharing a bed. Um, Oh, that's hilarious, Ron. (laughs) I'm talking. That's hilarious. Actually, what we said was lover. Uh, he happened to be an intern uh, at the Film Society of Lincoln Center that was showing a film by Jonathan Demme. And my lover literally just put this script into Jonathan Demme's hands. We never made it, but it was, it was a romantic comedy. And Jonathan loved it, and he gave me a career. I'll finish my conversation with Ron Nicewaner after a break. He'll talk about mixing politics with art and answer this deeply important question. We going to get a rom-com from you, Ron? 
It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, if you enjoy Bullseye, you will love NPR's Planet Money. It's full of funny, insightful stories about how the world works, like how Price Club and its imitators made shopping harder and why customers loved it. Plus useful stuff, like the inside story behind the resurrection of the Hydrox cookie. Find Planet Money now at npr.org slash podcast and on the NPR One app. I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. We say all the horrible things about having kids, so you don't have to. And you can come across as the magical vessel, Pinterest perfect parent society wants you to be. One Bad Mother. Because this is hard and nobody gives a Check us out on iTunes and MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Guy Brandon, providing all of your Jesse Thorne-related needs for the week. My guest is Ron Neiswanner. He's the Academy Award-nominated screenwriter behind films like Soldier's Girl, Love Hurts, and Philadelphia. His new movie, Freeheld, stars Ellen Page and Julianne Moore and is in theaters now. All right, let's listen to a clip from Philadelphia. In this scene, Joe, the character played by Denzel Washington, is deciding whether to represent Andrew, the character played by Tom Hanks. It's full of crackling conflict between two men who will end up being allies. Let's hear a clip. All right, explain this to me like I'm a two-year-old, okay? Because there's an element to this thing I just cannot get through my thick head. Didn't you have an obligation to tell your employer you had this dreaded, deadly, infectious disease? That's not... The point, from the day they hired me to the day I was fired, I served my clients consistently, thoroughly, with absolute excellence. If they hadn't fired me, that's what I'd be doing today. And they don't want to fire you for having AIDS, so in spite of your brilliance, they'd make you look incompetent, thus the mysterious lost file. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Correct. I was sabotaged. I don't buy it, counselor. That's very disappointing. I don't see a case. I have a case. If you don't want it for personal reasons. Thank you, that's correct. I don't. Well, thank you for your time, Counselor. Why was the character of Denzel Washington's character, Joe Miller, so important to telling this story? Well, Philadelphia was, I think, one of the maybe the only movie that I've ever done that was designed in a sense that it had a specific purpose other than, you know, making a, a, an entertaining movie. It, and its purpose was to create a conversation among mainstream Americans about AIDS and homophobia. And to have that conversation with the American public, and, and when I say that, I mean not to make a movie that played only to liberal audiences who would then, you know, reward us and applaud us and think we were great and then but uh, would be avoided by people who didn't necessarily feel comfortable with those issues. That's not what we wanted to do. So to have that conversation with the audience, we had to have people in the movie have that conversation. And that's why uh, Denzel's character, Joe Miller, was so important. Um, in the introduction to uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde sort of makes a hard argument that art – shouldn't have a clear message that like art is aesthetics it should be ambiguous how do you make something that is articulating a viewpoint but also is 
art that is not didactic, that is not just lecturing an audience? Well, you know, the, the scene that we just heard, actually, I was thinking about, you know, there are a lot of pauses between the sentences, and I know why. If you, I remember how that scene is directed. What's happening is the camera is focusing on Tom Hanks' hands and Denzel Washington's hands. And Denzel Washington just remembers that he offered Tom Hanks a cigar, and Tom reached into the cigar box, and Denzel's looking at all the places where Tom has touched. And, and he immediately leaves the scene, by the way, and goes to his doctor uh, to talk about uh, HIV. Jonathan Demme's direction is so artful in the scene that I think it elevates the conversation. And, you know, I don't know, just because Oscar Wilde says something, I don't know if I have to agree with it, (laughs) Uh, although I think he's a genius. You know, I know that Philadelphia, I have met, it's been 20-plus years, I, I, you know, I have met people, and this is, you know, all I needed, actually, you know, who have walked up to me and said, because I watched your movie, I came out to my parents. Because I watched your movie, I uh, told my parents I had HIV. Because my parents watched your movie, uh, they asked me to come back home. We hadn't spoken in eight years. And I got a call. My mother said, would you please come home? All right. Uh, there's a, uh, another scene in Philadelphia where uh, Tom Hanks' character makes uh, Denzel Washington's character listen to a Maria Callas aria <laughs> and yes. talks him through it. Yeah. Um, why was that important in this movie? That's me being gay. <laughs> that's the... That's... I was... That came right out of, I was working on the script. I was playing that aria. I'm not a big opera queen, but I love that particular aria. And I was getting in the mood for writing that day. And I was listening to that aria, and I was crying because uh, it brings tears to my eyes. And my lawn guy, Russell, I remember this so clearly, knocked on my door, which has a glass window in it, my back door, to ask me something about mowing the lawn. And he saw me cr- listening to opera crying. And I, I had this incredible rush of gay shame. Like, oh, God, the long guy now knows what a I am. I'm, like, listening to opera, and I'm crying. And I was humiliated for a moment. And then I thought, oh, well, this is very interesting. <laughs> this is very interesting. And I wrote, that scene went right in, and I handed it to Demi, and he said, oh, well, uh, this is great. <laughs> did he get it? He got it immediately, but very few other people did. But there is an interesting way that there is the shame associated with that moment of... Somebody has seen me being this gay. But the weird way that um, Andy in that movie is so brought down by everything around him and he's getting the power and energy from art. He is being sustained by art. Why does that mean so much to gay guys? You know, I, and by the way, I didn't mean that in the movie it was meant to, to be about gay shame at all. It was my, that was my particular experience that I thought, oh, why am I so... Well, wouldn't that be interesting if Andrew, at this moment of this, this darkness, this, as the darkness is gathering around him, he actually... This was like a life rope to him. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's, you know, it's like, why did I, you know, when I was 13, make my mother, who worked in a record store, buy me every Barbra Streisand album that existed at that time? Because Barbara, what is she famous for? Emotion. She lets it go, you know? And that's what we couldn't do. I couldn't let... I, I had to monitor... Again, it was a different time. I had to monitor and thought about constantly the way that I walked and carried my books to school. Because I was f- occasionally beat up because of the way... Like, I'm walking? Really? You're beating me up because of the way I walk? And the way I talk, the way I use my voice. I had to monitor everything about myself for me it wasn't even just about being called a name. It was about experiencing physical injury because of the way I spoke, the way I looked, the way I talked, the way I walked. And so when people, you know, would just 
let go with their emotions. And so that's what the scene is to me. It's like this is it's Andy saying to Joe, this is who I am. This is your client. I'm a gay guy who cries and listens to opera. You know, you ready for this? And I also think art is elevating. You know, it takes us to some place better. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Guy Branham and for Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Ron Nicewanner, the Academy Award-nominated screenwriter behind the new movie Freeheld, starring Ellen Page and Julianne Moore. Freeheld is in theaters now. When did you see the documentary Freeheld? Uh, probably 2009. It was sent to me. Ellen uh, had discussed doing it with uh, some of the producers that are attached to the film, uh, who made the film, and they sent me uh, the documentary. Ellen Page you're referring to. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, there have been a lot of high-profile, prestige gay movies where a straight actor plays gay, and we're all very proud of them for being brave. <laughs> That's uh, true. How cool was it to work on this movie with an actual factual lesbian? Well, you know, Ellen has only been out officially for a couple of years, right? Uh-huh. And I'm very respectful of people's privacy, and I actually believe civil rights means you have a right to define yourself, you know, not me. So when we were meeting in early stages of talking about this, I didn't say, and you're gay, right, Ellen? Uh, so it was an unspoken thing. and I, um, But it was, once she came out, uh, I think it really helps the movie. I think and it helped uh, all of us feel comfortable. All right, let's listen to a clip of Freeheld. Hey, are you, you leaving? Oh, yeah, all kinds of work to do. It's a long drive home. Where's that? Ocean County, New Jersey. <gasps> Damn. You drove all the way out here to play volleyball and you don't even like it? Every now and then, I think she'd go out and try and meet someone. Yeah. And they don't have girls in Jersey. <laughs> yeah, it's not that. Um, it, people know me back home. It's hard to go out and have privacy. I should go. Okay. Can I have your number? Uh, Laurel, Julianne Moore's character, is a, in many ways a deeply closeted person. Um, it, in this film, you draw a really close relationship between the idea of being out and being politically equal. Do you think, like, the idea of closetedness, the concept of closetedness, has changed in meaning over the course of the past 20 years? Um, well, I don't know if it's being closeted has changed. You know, if one feels it's necessary to be closeted, I'm sure it's just as painful uh, and uh, stifling as it always was. Uh, I think what is changing is that the number of situations and circumstances where one feels required to be closeted. You know, in Freeheld, uh, Laurel's trying very hard to be the first lieutenant on this particular police force. She's, she's working in a very macho environment. She's, uh, so I think she, that, was, that was one of those situations where being closeted actually was, she felt was necessary. To, to getting along in that environment. I do think it's changing. You know, I, I think that it's just easier in lots of places now to be uh, who you are, and that's that's kind of great. The character of, of Dane, Laurel's partner on the force, uh, has been criticized by some people as being a white male heterosexual intermediary who is is white knighting for these poor lesbians. What's the role of a character like that in creating relatability to a non-gay audience? It was not designed for that purpose. It's just what is. You could not truthfully tell the story of Laurel and Stacy's fight with the freeholders and leave Dane out. If you did, you would be 
it would be deeply offensive to Stacy. And if Laura was still alive, she would arrest me and throw me in jail. It would be deeply offensive to them. Their friendship and their partnership was is essential to that story. So if you're if you're afraid of doing that, then leave the story alone. You know, but cutting Dane out it would be uh, would be a lie. It would be a lie to history. And you know, out of some political correct thing that says, you know, well, the women should just be in charge because this is their story. It wasn't their story. It's just their story. It was also Dane's story. It's about, you know, everything affects everybody around us. Um, So this one, you know, almost everything that the people in the movie do and say, the real people did and said. So you are a shouty political gay guy. How did you relate to these people who were so reticent about politics, who were so quiet and private? Well, in the same way that you know that I described, you know, I, when I was caught crying listening to a Maria Callas aria, I felt immediate shame. You know, so you know you carry that with you. You know, I'm 58 years old, and you know I can still. Ron, re- this is Los Angeles. You don't say that out loud. <laughs> they believe me. Everybody will Google it and they'll know. So why lie about it? Um, I think that uh, I still carry some of that shame deep inside me, you know, when the kids at the bus stop called me names and tried to beat me up. That doesn't, it's, it's, I find that very hard to just erase completely. So that's what I could connect to. Well, uh, on the subject of shame in representing gay characters, very frequently in, in movies or TV, gay identity is triangulated by creating a worse, more flamboyant gay character mm. so that our, our main character seems nice and normal. I would like to say, as a flamboyant uh, political gay Jew, I deeply loved Steve Carell's uh, performance as Stephen, uh, sort of the the rabble rouser, who you made prickly and you made too flirtatious. How do you achieve a character who is able to be all of those prickly, difficult parts of being gay but is still human? Well, uh, because, again... Have you met Stephen Goldstein? <laughs> uh, Stephen, that is Stephen. And Stephen is prickly. He's a rabble rouser. He's hilarious. He's energetic. He's a little over the top. And he's great. So, uh, you know, this one, I, you know, this, I just, this movie is, we just told the truth. How did you learn about the story of uh, Barry Winchell and Calpurnia Adams? I read about it in various magazines. You know, it was a famous story when it happened. Um, you know, that Barry Winchell had been murdered. Uh, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and that he had been dating Calpurnia Adams, a transgender woman, off base. And uh, I, I read an article, and I was halfway through it, and I called my agent and said, so this, I, I have to write this, whatever it takes. And uh, I did. Why did you keep taking on these fights? Why did you not go after something that oh, would... Oh, because it's a good story. <laughs> you know, it's a good story. I mean, you know, it's a, a lawyer in the closet getting AIDS is good drama, yeah. you know, and it, that sounds callous, but, you know, really, if you're a writer your whole life, as I am, you know, every, you, you know, you see somebody jump off a building, you know, you're like, like, oh, that's too bad. Like, hmm, is there a story here? You know, that's, that's your, your writer's instinct goes to what is, is, this, is there a good story here? And, you know, look, come on, Barry Winchell, a, a, a straight uh, private in the army being beaten to death by his roommate while he's dating a transgender woman. I mean, that done, that's a good story. After having had such an astounding tragedy so early in her life, she is an amazingly upbeat person. <laughs> uh, she's an extraordinary person. I'm going to be really honest with you, uh, Guy, being honest here in front of, with your audience, you and your audience. There was always a part of me that thought, you know, 
this whole trans thing. Like, I know I'm a civil rights activist, but I think it's a little weird that you want to do surgery to your body. There was always some prejudice in the back of my mind. And then I got to know Calpurnia um, and a really good friend of hers, Andrea James, uh, who are very both very good friends of mine now. And, you know, I thought, oh, these two people, they're like so together. <laughs> they're trans people. Yeah. They're like they're like more together than I am. You know, so that prejudice, Calpurnia erased that prejudice in me. Um, it is kind of like Joe in Philadelphia, just having to have that moment of realizing, like, I'm not going to die from just touching this person. Mm. Like, just sort of like seeing somebody's reality and realizing, oh, yeah, what was I thinking? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. One more question for you. In so many representations of gay people in film, we have to die to be sympathetic. We have to die to cap our story. You've written a, a lot of amazing movies and several amazing movies about gay characters who end up dying at the end of the movie. Do you feel like uh, do you feel like it is um, something we need to be aware of and, and move away from or do you think that's just drama? It's drama. I wrote Mrs. Sofa with Diane Keaton and Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson and Matthew Modine die in the movie, The Painted Veil. Naomi Watson, Edward Norton. Edward Norton dies at the end of the movie. It's, it's you know, I'm, and I'm, I worked on Ray Donovan. Now I'm working on Homeland. People die every episode. Yeah. You know, drama is made of life and death issues. You know, and watching people sort of have a nice time and, you know, walk off into the sunset. That's a home movie. It's not, it's not drama. But the thing is, is we can't hold hands and go off to the specter of a baby. Like, we frequently have not been able to have the romance or comedy that, that other people have because you don't have a structure for that. Well, certainly, I think, with Modern Family, with Will and Grace, I, I actually think that that has changed. And there's a whole world of queer cinema out there, you know. if you, I mean, there are hundreds of LGBT uh, film festivals, you know, all over this country. Yeah, and there are a lot of people making queer romantic comedies and romances and movies with happy endings, you know. So I, I, I think it is happening. We're going to get a rom-com from you, Ron? I, I'm terrible at it. I have tried a couple times in my career, and they are the great failures of my career. And uh, I, to me, I, my movies succeed when somebody dies. <laughs> so that's my, that's my genre, I guess. Well, Ron, you're just going to have to go ahead with making powerful dramas to get nominated for Academy Awards. Well, we'll see. I we hope, hope you're happy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Ron Nicewater is the screenwriter behind the new movie Freeheld, starring Ellen Page and Julianne Moore. Freeheld is in theaters now. This is Bullseye, but I'm not Jesse Thorne. I'm Guy Branham filling in. Every week, Jesse ends the show with a pop culture recommendation, so I figured I should too. It's the outshot. In 1991, Freddie Mercury died, and a tribute concert was organized in Wembley Stadium for the following year. Annie Lennox had the hardest job. She wasn't just covering a Queen song. She was covering Under Pressure, Mercury's duet with David Bowie, and she was singing it with David Bowie. The inadequacy of her voice compared to Mercury's would be in starkest relief. In a concert full of well-intentioned but mediocre covers, it could not succeed. But Freddie Mercury was more than a voice. He was also showmanship. And Annie Lennox, a fan of Freddie's since she was a teenager, was committed to pay tribute to more than just Mercury's music. In documentary footage from after the show, she says, there was a sort of glorious rebelliousness about it and the kind of freedom attached to it that represents the whole of the spirit of rock and roll 
and fantastic theatricality and campness. She sweeps out onto the stage, her face covered in white makeup with red lips and a gash of black across her eyes. Her dress is a disco ball atop a mountain of black tulle, but her hair is short and slicked back. What she's doing is striking, not pretty. With every syllable Lennox sings, she poses, she twists her head, she throws a shoulder. Bowie, in a bright green suit with his party-colored eyes, sings the song like he's always sung it. But the other half of the duet is so different. Where Mercury's voice was angelically high, Lennox's is low and throaty. Freddie Mercury always performed like an opera diva trapped in the body of a street tough. Lennox is a street tough trapped in the body of an opera diva. She swans and parades with every note, every syllable forced out with the entirety of her being. But the giganticness of her performance is not out of place. It is apt. It is consummate to the stadium of 72,000 people crying out for the performer they loved who will never be there again. And her answer is not to emulate him, but to say he cannot be emulated and that a beautiful thing is gone from this world. She gives them the transcendence they deserve. I randomly found it online one day when I was searching for videos of Annie Lennox because that's what gay men do. And since then, I have not been able to stop watching it or stop crying while I watched it. It is a performance of keenest intellect, deepest emotion, and sublime campness. It is the most complete performance I have ever seen. So go to the internet, type in Annie Lennox Under Pressure, and get ready for catharsis. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, hosted this week by me, Guy Branham. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Iberian X. Perello. And our senior producer is the very enthusiastic and supportive Colin Anderson. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear more about cool culture stuff, you guys can check out my regular podcast, Pop Rocket. Uh, it is a cool roundtable discussion I do with Winter Mitchell, Margaret Wappler, and Oliver Wang. And we talk about everything that's great in popular culture. It's usually hosted by me, but this week it has been taken over by Aaron Gibson and Brian Safi from the equally amazing Throwing Shade podcast. That's about it from Bullseye. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. And mine is Jesse Thorne will be back next week. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. The most exquisite animals.